0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Main Street Vegan Show. We pride ourselves in bringing you all kinds of fascinating guests from Across America and Across the Seas. We're doing both of those things today. After the first break, I'll be bringing on Joanne Farr. Many of you know her for her wonderful book about raising compassionate children. She's also quite an expert in the world of the gluten-free. We've never talked about that, so we're going to after the break. But right now, we're also going to be talking about being free of certain grain products, the uh, fermented and distilled kind, with Andy Ramage, who's joining us from London. He is an ex-professional soccer player turned oil broker who decided to quit alcohol in the face of massive social pressure and started a movement to help others do the same. It's called One Year, No Beer. You can find the information at OneYearNoBeer.com. And as part of this process, Andy looked to improve his diet, which led him to becoming vegan. Welcome. Welcome to Vegandom, and welcome to the program, Andy Ramage. How
3: are you doing, Victoria? Ramage. I like it. Thank you. I
0: like it, too. I like it. It sounds very elegant. You said I could yeah. put the emphasis on either syllable, and I just opted to...
3: <laughs> I like it a lot,
0: Get- Give, give a little flair. So, Andy, one year, no beer. How come you didn't just stop and be done with it?
3: Yeah, I think what I needed was a, a challenge. And I think so many people need a challenge. You know, we all love our Tough Mudders and triathlons and all these things. And I'm a sporty guy. So I almost needed an excuse, really, as well, that, that would stand up in the pub. Unfortunately, you know, there's so much social pressure out there. Um, with regards to drinking, especially I'm in the city, I'm a broker in the city, and it's part of our job, part of what we do. And then you try and turn around to clients on a Thursday night and say you don't want to drink. It's just unfortunately, it's just not acceptable. So the challenge element gave me that excuse. It gave me that thing to say to people in the pub, I'm doing this, I'm doing it for a year, get off my back essentially, uh, and let me get on with it.
0: So do you think there's more pressure in the U.K. than over here in the U.S.? I know you were just visiting New York.
3: Um, I think it's endemic. I think it's everywhere. I mean, you know, we set up this website, this movement, thinking it would just be London-based, and it's gone into over, you know, sort of 7,700-odd cities all over the world. I mean, we see New York, Brazil, everywhere. I think this this pressure is there. And again, when we set it up, we thought it was just going to be in the city broker types, but then we hear that it's in media. It's in, you know, the armed forces. I think it's I think it's everywhere.
0: Well, it is fascinating. I was at dinner with several people um, a few months ago, and I didn't drink. I, I rarely drink. Every now and then I will have something, but I don't really like it. It makes me sleepy. It's not my thing. So I ordered some tea, and this woman, a mature, professional woman, said to me, well, you're no fun. And I'm thinking, what? difference does it make to you what beverage i order so i kind of get it
3: yeah oh completely and you can imagine that that's multiplied times 100 in, in, in certain places and that's what you know i think one you need you know beers all about really is about providing role models because the conventional wisdom says you need alcohol to have fun you need alcohol to do good good business you need it to commiserate to celebrate and that's just wrong it's just not right and i think there's so many parallels with veganism, for example, conventional wisdom says to the average man, you need to eat meat. You know, it's a manly thing. It's tough. You know, you need it to build muscle. And that's actually not true. So I think there's a lot of parallels between what you're doing and what we're doing at one. You know, Be it, it's actually trying to make a societal shift, I think, is to provide those role medals so that you don't get those comments at parties and people say, are you boring? You know, I always think I know what's boring. I know boring is waking up on a Saturday morning so hungover you can't face the world and you want to sit around watching dvds boring repeating yourself all night whereas you know going alcohol free is the exact opposite to that you know you remember what's going on you add to the conversation and then you can get up on the saturday morning and get out there and love life i think that's what it's all about
0: so your site i've, I've gone there and, and it, it is a challenge so you can select if you want to be one year or a shorter time period so explain to us how this works and who you're targeting
3: I think it's for everyone, really. But, uh, I mean, the demographic tends to be sort of 35-plus professionals, I I guess. But, you know, we call it one you know beer. It gets people thinking, and it rhymes. Um, But you can do 30 days, 90 days, or the big 365. What we do know is if people can do 30 days, they can do 90. If they can do 90, they can do 365. But it's somewhere between 30 and 90 days where the real magic happens. Most people can take a month off through willpower alone you know lots of people take jan off for example and they cancel their social calendar and they lock themselves away but if you do 90 days you have to get back into society again you have to you know take on those big challenges you know whether it be a wedding or a stag do um or a birthday so i think it's important that the challenge is somewhere between 30 and 90 days because the magic happens and once you face the wedding and, you, you know, you have a great time. You socialize without alcohol. These are massive moments in your life. You actually start to prove to yourself that that conventional wisdom that's been hanging around you for all these years is actually wrong.
0: So you're trying to reach anybody who wants to not drink for a period of time to be more productive, uh, to be healthier, more vital. You're not like AA where you're looking at alcoholics who need to not drink forever. Is that right? Yeah.
3: Exactly. So this is very much uh, preventative. This is anyone who drinks, you know, even if it's a couple of drinks, you know, a week to someone who drinks quite heavily. I mean, we've got people that would easily classify in the stereotypical terms. I'm sure it's alcoholics, although it's not aimed for those people. It's just for anyone who wants to come and take a break from alcohol. And what we're trying to show people that an alcohol free lifestyle is a fantastic one and something that people should aspire to. And as you mentioned there, it gives you a huge advantage. The productivity that we all get now is off, off the scale. You save. Money, you get your time back, you know, all those hours that have been wasted, You get your health back, your vitality back. People are losing weight. It gives you a chance to look at your diet, as I did. You know, suddenly when the hangovers are gone, I noticed when I ate a big steak, for example, I wanted to go to sleep, you know, 10 minutes later because, you know, you start to see what's going on with your body. So it, what we've actually found is it's more than giving up alcohol. It's actually a keystone habit, that unlocks a whole host of of a well-being habits. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's totally key.
0: That's so exciting. So where you are right now, your, your program is called When You're No Beer, but it sounds to me like you just don't drink.
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, I've made the choice two and a half years ago. I'll never go back. It adds no value to my life. You know, I've reached a point where I just don't see why, why would I drink? Why would I drink something I didn't particularly enjoy anyway and go back to hangovers, lethargy and regret? So what we're trying to give people is just a window into an alcohol-free world, and then it's completely up to them it's their choice you know if they get to 90 days they want to carry on brilliant or if it just means they go back to you know drinking alcohol but they've changed their relationship that's also fantastic you know we're not here telling people off or telling people what to do we're just saying look this is what we're doing we're getting some amazing results for having this wonderful lifestyle change why don't you come and check it out i mean what, what have you got to lose
0: the hangover
3: <laughs> oh, wait, so, oh, do you know, a great point
0: so um, what would you advise someone in, in this business world and in the really cutthroat where, as I envision it, I mean, I'm lucky enough that I've worked for myself for a really long time, but I, I see the movies about Wall Street and everything, yeah. and it's sort of like lots of Starbucks in the daytime and lots of booze at night. So what do you say to somebody? What are they supposed to say to their colleagues and the people who are pressuring them?
3: Yeah, well, I think a a lot of it starts from role models, and this is what Ruri and I, the the co-founder, are trying to do. We're we're quite successful in business, we're in the brokerage space, which is stereotypically one of the biggest boozy, you know, drinking environments there is, and we're thriving, alcohol-free. We're doing lots more business, expenses are down and businesses up, you know, so I think it starts with role models because, you know, we, we sort of glorify the sort of the drunken, you know, uh, celebrities. We glorify that, that these people. but well, we don't actually even mention the guys that are out there being hugely successful in business that don't drink alcohol. And actually what we're realising now, and the millennials coming through are drinking less and less, it provides such an advantage. And this is the message we're trying to get across to people. If you want to be successful in your job, if you want to perform at a, a peak level, then alcohol shouldn't be, you know, on the table. Especially, you know, you look around an office on a Friday morning, most people can barely speak let alone do their jobs, because they're so hung over from the night before, whereas we're on the ball. you know. So I think it's just getting those type of messages across and then giving people the excuse, which we mentioned earlier, of, look, I'm on a challenge. Most people respect you taking on a challenge. It has not an, an ending, so they don't mind it so much, that it's not like this infinite thing. It's like, look, I'm just doing 30 days. But we know if you can do that 30 days and you start to feel these changes and people can see these changes, then you get the space to decide what you want to do.
0: And how about the people who are listening who would say, I don't get drunk, I don't get hungover, you know, I have a couple of glasses of wine, what's the problem?
3: Yeah, exactly. I mean, even if you look at sleep, for example, and sleep is such an underrated part of well-being, but it's so important. Any real amount of alcohol is going to affect your sleep, simple as that. Even if you're having one or two drinks or a glass of wine, it's going to affect your sleep, which is going to affect your productivity, which is going to affect your well-being. So it will have an effect, you know. So even for these people, I'd say just just try it out. I mean, we're all for moderation. If people have genuinely got control and they have the odd drink every now and again, fantastic. Um, but at the same time, it's something that everyone should experience because we've, we've discovered people that barely drink or drink one or two drinks still see benefits.
0: I love it. I think it's great because I never understood about alcohol. You know, anytime I drank it, it never made me happy. It just made me tired. And so I watch people who say, you know, it loosens them up and it gives them all the social ease and it's as if they're speaking another language. So it's good to know that there are other people out there having the green juice with me. So what about people who would say, oh, my goodness, I'm already vegan. Good Lord. Good Lord. I've given up everything now, and you're suggesting maybe something else too?
3: Yeah, well, I guess I'm the reverse of that. I, you know, I, I stopped drinking alcohol and then became vegan. And I'm, I'm sure people look at me and go, this guy is like, you know, he's crazy, which, you know, it's breaking every stereotype of the city, really. You know, the city's big drinking, meat-eating men, for example. Uh, you know, and I think it's important that – You do what's right for you, and and giving up alcohol is a massive advantage. And the way I see it is, eating well and eating healthily, whether that's vegetarian or vegan, gives you another advantage. It gives you an edge, you know. But I do find that you have to explain yourself all all the time. I'm sure you do to to friends and family when they they ask exactly that question. Oh my god, you don't drink, and now you don't even eat dairy products. You don't even eat steak. (laughs) What's left? And I'm like, but I'm perfectly happy. I love living like this i'm thriving like this and people can see it I and mean, they can see your body you know your body looks fit and healthy they can see it in your eyes i mean I, I remember an anecdote from my mom when i first told her a year and a half ago that i was moving towards a vegan diet she said looked at me sort of said oh but but they've all got really pasty skin and maybe your hair will start to fall out you know and your teeth will fall out i was like mom no you don't understand and I, so i think veganism like al- al- alcohol has got this conventional wisdom around it that's actually untrue And um, that's something that I'm determined to prove wrong. So not only in alcohol, also in food.
0: Well, I I love it. I love this kind of straight edge uh, philosophy and how you're out there. And I can just tell talking to you, you live a very exciting life. You're not missing out on anything. And yet you choose to do it without alcohol, without animal food. So you're a healthy vegan, too. You don't get into a lot of donuts.
3: No, no, no! I'm I'm uber <laughs> uber healthy. I mean, it sums it up. This morning, before work, at 6:30 a.m., I was on a boat going round the Thames at a morning rave, like a dance, basically a dance festival on a boat yes. from for all people that don't drink. So there's no alcohol involved. 6:30 a.m. to 8 a.m. on the River Thames, going up and down, beautiful sunsets. It was amazing, you know. And these are the th- these are the movements that are actually happening out there. You know, you've got this vibrant group of sort of young people out there absolutely living life and loving it alcohol free i think it's really important
0: i love it well my stepdaughter is living in london at this point and she doesn't drink so i should hook her up with you that sounds like a fun fun morning on the thames
3: oh it was, it was amazing it's called daybreaker yeah it's absolutely amazing
0: i think we have something like that in you new do. york not not boats, but the dances
3: Yeah, exactly. I think Daybreaker could well be in New York. They're they're starting to take off all over the world now, but it's just lovely to go to these events, you know, before work. I mean, I got off the boat, went straight to the office. I mean, it's fantastic.
0: So do you think that this is signaling a shift in what it means to be cool, what it means to have fun?
3: Absolutely. I think there's a paradigm shift. Uh, It's coming. You know, it really is. And hopefully we're at the forefront of that and trying to help, bring it through and i think it's the same with food as well i think both veganism and these are my two big predictions and you know reduction in alcohol are going to be the, the the big things over the next five ten years um so yeah there's a real paradigm shift happening
0: i love it that could change a whole lot of things about how people relate to one another and just the kind of clarity of thought that people in power bring bring to work into governments and all sorts of places
3: yeah, I, so, I think it's just, it's just proving to people that conventional wisdom that, that we've grown up with is actually, it's not true, and it's to challenge these ideas, you know, that are hand-me-down beliefs and challenge these things about food, challenge these things about alcohol.
0: I love that phrase, a hand-me-down belief. I like that. That reminds me of second-hand protein.
2: Those yeah, be exactly.
0: my phrases for today. Second-hand protein, cycled through animals, don't need it. Second-hand beliefs about any of this stuff, we don't need those either. Exactly. Well, Andy Ramaj, how delightful to speak with you! I look forward to meeting you one day on somebody's side of the ocean, and yeah. we will go have a celery, kale, cucumber, and lemon juice, and uh, get acquainted face to face. Thank you so much for spending this time with us.
3: Yeah, it was lovely, and we'll go for a dance afterwards. I
0: about. would love that. I would love that. And everybody listening, take a look. One year, no beer com and challenge yourself and see how much more vital and amazing you become thanks so much andy all the best
3: thank you see you guys
0: <laughs> okay everybody else stay with us we are going to be speaking with joanne farb and learning what this gluten thing is all about stay with us Welcome back to the program. Before I introduce our next guest, I just want to let you know what's happening over at the blog at MainStreetVegan.net or MainStreetVegan.net slash blog. It's about vegan ice creams that you can make yourself. Now, if you have an ice cream maker, they're going to be all smooth and creamy and wonderful. But even if you don't, you can still have homemade ice cream. And Vicki Brett Gatch of um, Ann Arbor, Michigan, she's a wonderful chef and columnist and blogger and recipe creator up there, a graduate of Main Street Vegan Academy, is sharing five frosty favorites uh, on the blog this week. So do take a look over at MainStreetVegan.net. And right now, We are going to be talking with someone that I have admired for a long, long time. If you are someone who attends the Vegetarian Summer Fest, you will know this person and be happy to hear from her again. And if um, you're new to Joanne, then you're in for a treat. Joanne Farb was a small child. When a terrible event took place in our country, a woman named Kitty Genovese was murdered. And no one stepped up to help her. And even as a little kid, this really got to Joanne, and she vowed that she would never ignore harms or injustice if her speaking up might prevent them. So she got a degree in microbiology and went to work for a pharmaceutical company, thinking she was going to help save lives and stuff. But what she found instead was how her food choices were fueling terrible injustice and violence that, like everybody else, she had been taught not to see. This was when she embraced veganism. Her first book, Compassionate Souls, Raising the Next Generation to Change the World, details her journey of raising healthy, compassionate, critical-thinking children. And her second book, Get Off Gluten, was written in response to her family's need to go gluten-free and she found that there weren't other gluten-free cookbooks that were also vegan and emphasizing whole foods. Welcome, Joanne Farb. Hi, Victoria. It's so nice to talk with you out there in the Lawrence, Kansas area. I think that was the most complete and succinct summary of my life I've ever heard. It is kind of scary sometimes when the best things you've done kind of get into a minute and it's like, yeah, (laughs) hopefully those will be the resumes that St. Peter has when uh, we show up on the other side. So start with, with some history, Joanne. Just introduce yourself to the listeners and tell us what happened when you were at that pharmaceutical company. Well, you know, I'd always thought of myself
1: as an animal lover. I was the kid who dragged home, you know, orphaned and injured creatures and nursed them around the clock and tried to rehabilitate them and set them free. And so when I first got this job or or was even applying for the job, It was interesting. One of the questions that they asked me after I'd made it through many rounds of interviews, this is the final round with the final person of a long day, the most intimidating person, I've just finished telling him my whole life story, and he looks me in the eye and he says, so, tell me what you think about animal rights. And at that time, I actually didn't know anything about animal rights, and I didn't even know that I didn't know anything, because I thought animal rights meant you loved animals. (laughs) And so, and I knew the job was going to involve me touring lab animal testing facilities, pharmaceutical manufacturing plants, and industrial agricultural operations. And so I was a little nervous about it because I, I did care about not hurting animals unnecessarily. And um, and so I wasn't sure how to answer the question. I, I'd, I'd been told by the, the earlier managers that had interviewed me and wanted me to work for them, just be yourself, everything you've said has been great, don't don't try to lie about anything, just be who you are and you'll get the job. So I'm faced with this question and I don't know how to answer it honestly, recognizing that if I answer it wrong, I won't get the job. And so there's just this long silence for a long time. I'm just staring into his eyes, my brain is racing, what am I going to say Finally, he cuts the silence and he says, you know, he said, I don't need to know the answer to that question. He said, all I need to know is, are you going to be able to do the job? So I got the job, and it was um, in some ways the the best job I'd ever had in my life. I liked the people I worked with. I was making great money, uh, company car, extraordinary benefits, great training, travel. But I was starting to see things that were very, very disturbing to me. And increasingly I started to recognize that my personal food choices were the fuel that was driving some horrific things. And um and so initially I, I didn't want to leave my job and I wasn't actually doing these things. I was just realizing that I was a cog in an industry that was doing this. Um and eventually that I, I had to give up the job. But in as I was learning and thinking and processing I became a closet vegan, as a, so that I could at least know that my personal choices were not fueling this industry. Um, and so it was—it was a—it was, was a difficult time for me until I finally left that position.
0: That is utterly fascinating. Because how did you even hear about veganism? And I'm actually surprised. Well, maybe I'm not surprised that someone in that industry knew about animal rights at that time. I'm not sure exactly what year we're talking about, but I remember leaving a magazine job in Kansas City in 1989 and telling my boss I want to work full-time for animal rights. And he said, animal what? And I said, animal rights. And he said, I don't know what that is, but if you really have to quit, what can I do to help you? And I said you can loan me your apartment in New York City while I go meet editors and the rest is history. But it's fascinating to me that you discovered veganism while you were in this other milieu. Yeah, it it you know, I look
1: back on it and it's like nothing short of a miracle that that the things happened as they did for me. Um, because not only that, I was I saw myself as a hugely food addicted kid. I was a compulsive overeater, I was I was nutty about food. Um, and I saw myself as somebody who had absolutely no willpower or no control whatsoever. And yet, when I was really faced with, with what I was seeing, I had no choice but to, to not do that. And it became easy for me at that point. Um, and so it's funny about animal rights. This was actually in the early 1990s, so very much about the same time. And the funny thing is, I didn't know much about animal rights but the industry i was working for had very strong opinions about it and they actually they spent a lot of time educating all of us about their perspective on animal rights which was these were you know people who hated people and were terrorists and were misguided and mentally ill i mean these were the perceptions and I remember hearing all that, and even at the time, still not really knowing what it was, but just having this vague idea that eh, maybe what they're telling me isn't, isn't really accurate, <laughs> but I didn't really know people who called themselves animal rights activists. I just had this caricature painted for me by the industry, and I knew it was a bad word. And whatever I did, I must never show you know, any sympathy for or interest in animal rights. Wow.
0: And then how did you hear about vegans?
1: So um, as I was seeing these things, and this is what I consider such a serendipitous thing, somebody put John Robbins' book into my hand at that time. And so as I'm seeing this and I'm reading his book, I'm starting to make, I mean, that's, that's helping me make the connection. I'm having the experience and then I'm getting all that. I didn't actually know another vegan in real life at that point. Um, in fact, I think the first time I ever met a vegan face to face, I had just given my two weeks' notice, and I heard Howard Lyman was coming to town as part of the Beyond Beef campaign. And somebody mentioned it to me, and I really wanted to go, but I was terrified um, because even though I had given my two weeks' notice, I still assumed, you know, this was my—I was a microbiologist. I'd have to work in some related industry at some point. And um, I was really scared that if I showed up at this, somebody would, you know, have my name or picture that I went to it, and I'd never be able to get a job again. (laughs) That's how paranoid I was from the things I heard within the industry. So Howard was actually probably the first other vegan I I remember meeting.
0: Wow. What a great story. And John Robbins and and Howard Lyman were really the people who were getting people over in in the late 80s and the early 90s, before there was the Internet doing what it's doing now, they were extremely powerful in uh, giving us enough numbers that there were some of us over here ready to welcome the vast numbers that we're getting now. So you've gone vegan, uh, you get married, you have these two beautiful children, Tell us about that. You didn't exactly raise your kids normally either. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, I, you know,
1: as a result of what I'd seen in the industry, and I, and I saw what really disturbed me was seeing otherwise good people who were able to just completely not see horrific violence that they were part of, and some of it was egregious beyond what they needed to do for their job. And that's what really got to me. Um, was, you know, I could understand they're being paid to do X, Y, and Z, and they're, they're caught in the system. But, but then they did things that, that went beyond that, that were like the Kitty Genovese thing. And I thought, if I'm going to be a parent someday, what can I do to make it less likely that my children will ever be individuals who could turn a blind eye to injustices happening to some others that they had been taught to ignore? And veganism just made perfect sense because three times a day they would be engaged in an activity that was sort of training them and habitually conditioning them to be thoughtful and considerate. And um, plus there were the health aspects of it, although I didn't know all of that right at that time. Um, but when I decided, so when I married my husband, he was not vegan, and I, I actually had not even considered at that point that I could have a vegan husband because, like I said, I didn't I'd never met other vegans. I was just doing this on my own. But I knew I wanted to raise my children vegan, and I knew that the most successful way to do that was if the parents were united and modeling that example for their children. So I met my husband, and we got serious, and I, I told him I needed to live in a vegan home, and I needed to know that he would always be that example in front of our children and that we could raise them vegan, and he agreed. And But the first real roadblock we came up against was when I was pregnant with my firstborn, and we found this lovely midwife who was extraordinary. And then when she found out we were vegan, she started saying, you know, you really need to add a little fish or chicken back to your diet. She said, the vegans I've seen just haven't done so well in pregnancy. And, you know, I was scared because I trusted her, and she was, she'd was she been through thousands of births. I had never been through any. Um, and so it, that sent me straight to the medical library. I wanted to find out, well, what science was there to back this up? And at that time, there wasn't a lot. But what I did find was that the farm in Summertown, Tennessee, they had managed over a 1,000 births, and they were a vegan-intentional community and often took in women who were unwed young teen mothers to help them and even had women there in their 40s considered high-risk by conventional standards. And all of these women were eating a vegan diet through their pregnancies while they lived at the farm. And their birth outcomes were extraordinary. They were better than any other populations I've ever seen statistics on. You know, low rates of preeclampsia, low rates of diabetes, uh, low rates of stillbirth, um, good maternal and infant outcomes. And so that plus a, a study, a small study that had been mentioned in the New England Journal of Medicine suggesting that the breast milk of vegan women was much lower in environmental contaminants than that of omnivores. Those two things and a book by Dr. Michael Clapper were enough to keep me on the path and show me that even against my midwife's wishes and my well-meaning relatives who thought there's no way my baby could possibly survive and be healthy without cow's milk, in spite of all that, I did stay the path. And I'm very, very grateful that I did. My my children are grown now, and they've had very good health.
0: And they're delightful, and they're doing amazing things in the world. So I do want to get to gluten, but just before we leave this topic of children and your beautiful book, beautiful book from Lantern Books, Compassionate Souls, Raising the Next Generation to Change the World, you had home births, you homeschooled, you did all kinds of different things with your daughters who are spectacular young women. Can you just give us a minute or two on that?
1: Yes, I'm, I, I would say the highlight of my life has been being a mother and seeing who my children have grown into. And in fact, one just graduated from uh, Grinnell College with a degree in biochemistry and policy studies and she's getting ready to do an internship at Tribe of Heart and Aww. yeah, yeah, we're very excited. And the other one is just graduated our homeschool high school and she's getting ready to start at Lawrence University in Appleton, Wisconsin. And they are both, They both tell me frequently how grateful they are that we made the decision to raise them vegan before they had the awareness and the cognition to make that choice for themselves. And they, they oh. just feel it's the most wonderful thing ever.
0: Well, I know you're very proud and you have every right to be. So as life goes on and you're finding that one of your daughters is having some difficulties, some digestive problems some situations that don't seem quite right then yeah. what happened
1: actually it was from the moment she was born and she had the, the the great birth at home underwater everything went perfectly well but literally from the moment i started nursing her it seemed like something was coming through my milk that was causing her distress and she would pull off and she would cry she had a lot of loose greenish stools Um, And so we had an idea something was going on, but every time we went to the doctor, and otherwise, you know, she was big for her age and she was growing well and reaching all the milestones appropriately, Um, but every time we'd go to the doctor, and and as she she got older, when she was three, she would often report, you know, my tummy's hurting, Um, and then she'd go off to play, so it was never so bad that it held her back. I would always mention this to the doctor, and I would say, you know, it's just, something's going on here. What could it be? And the doctor kept telling me, he said, you know, it's very common for children to have tummy aches. A lot of times they're just somaticizing emotional stuff. It's nothing. Don't worry about it. She's healthy. And so I, I kind of dismissed it and just kept thinking she's going to grow out of this. Well, by the time she was eight, I was making my own whole-grain uh, wheat bread from grinding my own wheat berries and adding extra gluten flour to make them rise really well, and we were eating, you know, three or four loaves a week as a family. And her tummy ache started getting worse. In the middle of night, one night, she woke me up screaming hysterically, and that's when I realized, okay, this is not nothing, and it's not going away. And we started seeking out other medical opinions. And I remember one doctor we went to tested her for ulcers. Um, and made a big deal when he found out we had never given her cow's milk, and then he tested her for all kinds of nutritional deficiencies because he was sure she was missing something, and it turned out she was fine. <laughs> um, and he still couldn't find anything. wasn't ulcers. He didn't know what it was. He threw up his hands. And so um, I, we kind of went the rounds of lots of different people telling us there's, they can't find anything, but my daughter's in pain. And finally, a friend of mine who had actually been saying this to me frequently, but I couldn't hear her yet, she kept saying, maybe it's gluten. And I kept dismissing her because I believed that the whole thing about gluten was completely misguided, that it was you know, people looking for, as Dr. McDougall says, good news about their bad habits and to try and justify not eating plant-based. And so I wasn't really willing to look at it. But finally, when we had nowhere else to turn, I thought I would try it, and I think I'd looked at it a little before that, but I didn't understand all the things gluten was in. I thought it was just mainly wheat. And so we had cut out wheat, but we were still eating barley in our soup. And I didn't realize that that that's why her symptoms weren't getting better when we tried that, so it misled us. But finally I found out everything was in. We found a non-invasive stool test, which was helpful for us, Although I no longer recommend it because I know they can give false negatives too and people won't pursue it further. But we came back very positive, not only my daughter, but all the whole family. And so we immediately we always are gl- you
0: saying positive for celiac disease? No, so or, this, or just for gluten tolerance. This is a non conventional
1: test looking for antibodies to a portion of the gluten molecule called gliadin. So the, the idea of this test is that when the body mounts a reaction, the first place it encounters gluten is in the gut. So the antibodies are produced in the gut. And only over time and with damage to the gut do they get into the bloodstream, which is where conventional doctors look for them. So this was looking for a specific antibody in the gut, which is considered, which is not the conventional approach, but they found it there. And for me, that was, that was compelling, like why is my body... Or, why it was her body initially producing antibodies to a portion of the gluten molecule? And m- amazingly, once we figured out everything that was gluten in, gluten was in, including oats, we cut out oats, her symptoms went away. And not only was it her gastrointestinal symptoms, but her entire emotional response system calmed down dramatically. And when you think about it, of course, if you're suffering physically, that's going to make you more emotionally reactive to everything. So everything, mm, sure. shifted, everything shifted for her when we did that. And not only for her, but the rest of us started noticing things that we would never, ever have connected with gluten that got better. Um, for example, for me, I would always get achy joints by the end of the summer when my tomatoes were coming in full and I was just gorging on them, nightshade sensitivity. And I knew about it because my mother had had this problem. And, you know, it was never so bad that it stopped me from eating tomatoes, which I love, <laughs> Um, but it was a nuisance, and I was aware of it, and I knew I'd eaten too many. Everything would just get kind of stiff. And after I went gluten-free, it never happened to me again. I could eat as many tomatoes as I wanted without that reaction.
0: Um, so here's, here's I think, the conundrum for, for vegans and, and the whole gluten situation. I mean, obviously, anyone who has celiac disease or some serious sort of reaction to gluten I mean, it simply makes sense. You have you have to get that out of the diet. But on the other hand, we have best-selling books out there like Grain Brain and Wheat Belly that are opposed to pretty much any kind of carbohydrates, all kinds of grains, whether they have gluten in them or not, and they're anti-vegan. Right. So I think for people who are ethical vegans who just want more people to be vegan – We would like people to tone down the gluten-free thing a little bit, but you said something very interesting in your talk at Summerfest, and that is that lots of these ex-vegans who say, yeah, I wanted to do that, I tried that, but I just didn't feel good, that maybe they were reacting to gluten. Tell us about that. So I actually think that gluten explains the
1: popularity of the paleo diet right now. And there's – so we're still – people need to understand the whole, our whole understanding of gluten and celiac disease is incredibly new and recent. And we still don't have the kinds of science to fully understand what's going on here. But given what we know about how all the various ways that meat, dairy, and eggs can harm our bodies – and given what we know about legumes and beans being the most critically important food to have in your diet if you want to have longevity and health, right, given that we, the science tells us those two facts overwhelmingly and that the longest-lived populations on the planet, the Blue Zones, all eat way less protein than most Americans do. So given those facts, how is it that so many people try going low-carb, paleo, Atkins, and eliminate the very foods that we know are the healthiest and increase the ones that we know are the most unhealthiest and have this experience where they say things like, the best I ever felt was on a low-carb diet. That, to me, suggests that there is something else going on here that these people are eliminating that was causing them more symptoms than the, less obvious, longer to manifest symptoms, harms from eating animal foods. And it, and I think it's gluten. And we have some growing scientific evidence now to back this up. And let me just say at the outset here, I think it's just a matter of time before we realize that the diagnosis of celiac disease as it stands right now, being based on the presence of specific antibodies in the blood and flattened villi in the small intestines, I think that criteria is going to turn out to be an arbitrary distinction, and that there are people who do not meet that criteria who are every bit as much harmed by gluten and is every bit as much likely to have long-term health repercussions from it as people with diagnosed celiac disease. I, I, think, I think the paradigm is about to shift. We just don't have all the, the, the good science in yet, but we do have some interesting studies, like a 2011 study from a group uh, in Spain that's titled Refractory Iron Deficiency Anemia and Gluten Intolerance. And in this study, they looked at 100 people who came to their clinic with what's called refractory iron deficiency anemia. This is anemia so severe that no treatment, no amount of iron can get their iron levels up. The only thing that works for these people are blood transfusions, and so they have to come in and keep getting blood transfusions in order to have sufficient iron levels. So they took these people, actually 98 completed the study, and they tested them by all currently used tests for celiac disease and gluten intolerance. When they looked at for the antibodies that are considered diagnostic for celiac disease, 5% of them were positive. When they looked for the villus atrophy in the small intestine, 13% were positive. And when they looked to see who had the genes that we believe are necessary in order for somebody to develop celiac disease, it was two-thirds of them, which is the national thats the national average. Two-thirds of us carry the genes believed to be necessary to predispose to celiac disease. So what that means is a third of these people were negative by all tests. They didn't even have the genes. And yet, when they put them on a total gluten-free diet, no cross-contamination even, ninety-two percent of them recovered from their anemia. So let so that go uh-huh. so, ahead. I was just saying. So let that sink in. A third of the people who are who we have no reason to believe they could possibly have celiac disease. But, uh, of the people who were so so severely iron deficient, they had to keep getting blood transfusions. They were negative by every test. Uh, you know, look how many were in fact being harmed by gluten, and we don't have any other testing to show us who they are.
0: Well, this is so interesting to me, Joanne, because the best I ever felt in my life was when I was on a one hundred percent raw food diet. Well, then autumn came. <laughs> <laughs> frosty winds and that was the end of my 100% raw food diet but just like you talk about the people who go paleo or Atkins and feel good that it might have something to do with gluten this is really fascinating so what would you say to a fellow vegan who travels a lot who's out in the world who's entertained and entertaining who might want to try a gluten-free diet when friends and others are saying, you're already difficult, don't be more so? <laughs> you know, um,
1: in our family, we we've, we've always had the sort of the little house on the prairie philosophy about food. We just never expect to have the food we need when we go out. We always bring it with us. And that's just how we've just adapted to that, and it works really well for us. And so we tell people, you know, don't worry about us. We'll we'll bring our own food, and we we do. Um, But increasingly, I think there's more options available if you're wanting to be out in the world. And, you know, if you're eating out at a restaurant, it's very easy now to just let them know, to have specific things you want to ask. You know, a sweet potato, a baked potato, steamed veggies, um, beans. These things are naturally gluten-free and uh, they're very highly nutritious, and
0: that's what you build your diet on. It's fascinating. I was in the subway the other day out with my dog, and this woman was talking about companion animals, and she told me about something I'd never heard of, cat cafes. Have you heard of cat cafes? No, what's that? Well, they're places where people can go who either just really love companion animals or don't have them. Maybe they they live in a place where um, non-human animals are not allowed. So you can go to this cat cafe, and I think they have coffee or something, but it's mostly so you can go there and pet cats. And and some of them are from uh, animal shelters and available for adoption, and others just, you know, hang out there and live in the cafe. And I said, oh, well, there is a shoe store on the Lower East Side that has cats, And this woman said, oh, I know Moose Shoes. And I was thinking, gosh, I've met a fellow vegan. And she said, my best friend took me there. She's vegan and I'm gluten free. And I was just like, oh, this is so difficult because I'm vegan because I want to save lives and save the world. And, you know, she's gluten free because she feels better and that's good. But, you know, the kind of, Equal, you're vegan, I'm gluten-free, we'll be friends. What do you do with that?
1: Well, you know, that's why we work so hard in our family, in our outreach and our activism to help people understand that veganism is not a diet. It's a social justice movement. And I also think, though, this is so important, why vegans understand about the issue of gluten, because if we can be inclusive and we can help people that have figured out gluten's a problem for them to realize, oh, go to the vegan event. Those vegans, they're such inclusive people. They always have gluten-free options. Then we sort of become the big tent that welcomes everybody and help people to understand that being gluten-free does not mean you can't be vegan.
0: Well, I think that's been a a big stumbling block for a lot of people. And I know that I don't do well with seitan, which probably means I shouldn't have gluten. But pure gluten, it's just I don't do well. And the only time I ever get it is at a vegan event.
1: Yeah, but I think it's starting to grow. You know, it's interesting. When I wrote my cookbook, Get Off Gluten, At that time, I was unable to find a single other whole foods, plant-based cookbook that was gluten-free. I didn't know of one. And now if you Google gluten-free vegan, dozens of books and websites, I mean, so much stuff comes up. It's growing phenomenally and people are recognizing that the two really go quite well together. You see, we have something important to offer to those who have already figured out they need to be gluten-free because they realize two things. Number one, that diet is huge in terms of creating your quality of life in a day-to-day way. And they also realize that um, the, the, the power of food to make a difference, you know, in how they feel, they're in kind of a teachable moment. They also know that inflammation is part of what drives their problems. And so when we reach out to them and share with them the science showing how pro-inflammatory animal protein is, how eating an animal-based diet alters your gut microbiome to a colony that increases inflammation in the body, and we show them how protective, uh, how the, the beneficial plant phytochemicals can reduce the inflammatory response. When they understand all of that and they realize they're already struggling with inflammation gone awry, a vegan diet offers them the chance to really turn that down.
0: That's exciting. I love the idea of feeling better and saving the world altogether, and I know that's what you are entirely about. The website is joannfarb.com. That's J-O-A-N-N-F-A-R-B.com. The books are Get Off Gluten and Compassionate Souls, so check those out. Now, on the website, Joanne posts gluten-free vegan recipes. She writes critical reviews of published, published science, and she speaks out on subjects of interest. Now, we only have two minutes left, Joanne, but can you give us the very short version of your fabulous post, Is Free Speech Dead in Lawrence, Kansas? Yes. So in some places right
1: now, there is a, there's a big backlash to promoting veganism and to talking about social justice for animals. And Lawrence, Kansas happens to be one of those places, but I feel like it is starting to change. But I have been shut out of a number of venues here that are controlled by people who are promoting humane meat and dairy products and want to see those industries grow and they would prefer to not have my message being shared. And so as a result, uh, there's, I lost my job teaching at our natural foods co-op because of this issue. And so I wrote an article, "Is Free Speech Dead in Lawrence, Kansas, that, that explains what happened. I would also just like to mention real quickly, I was down in Mississippi this last weekend speaking about gluten, and they have just posted um, that the video from my presentation so people can hear my whole presentation, I have linked to it on my front page of my website, joannfarb.com.
0: Great. And you're a wonderful speaker. I mean, I was absolutely riveted at Summerfest uh, during your your gluten-free presentation. And and I, I went as kind of a skeptic but um yeah you really know what to do with an audience and how to use those words to change things thank so you. everybody joannefarb.com a woman to watch thank you so much thanks joanne for all you do and for who you are thank you victoria and for, for being on the show <laughs> best best wishes everybody next week we are going to have Georges Larocque, a fabulous retired hockey player. Also, Nelson Campbell. You saw the movie, Plant Pure Nation. Well, now he's starting a bunch of other wonderful things, Plant Pure Communities, and also a wonderful Summit, the 2016 Plant Pure Summit. So he's going to be telling us all about that one week from today. Everybody, Thanks for being with us. God bless you. Eat your veggies.
2: Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. Are you ready for deeper spiritual breakthroughs? Have you wondered how to apply spiritual principles to your everyday life in practical ways? Do you feel your soul is calling you to deeper purposes?
0: When we think of
1: peace, we may imagine ourselves sitting high on a mountaintop at daybreak or walking on a secluded beach while the sun sets. But peace isn't a luxury reserved only for special occasions or special places. It's an essential tool for daily living. My peace isn't dependent upon a particular place or event. At any time and in any circumstance, I can shift my focus from the appearances of life to the reality of peace within myself. Park Cousins said, How things look on the outside of us depends on how things are on the inside of us. So if you don't like what you're seeing around you, paint a different picture within you. Peace. What I see is what I get. Peace can begin with me.
2: To find a Unity Church near you, please visit our website at www.unity.org.